Hello, everyone. Uh, this is a new episode of the Anigagi podcast, and I have a new guest today uh, that I'm very, very excited about. Um, I've been reading his work, and basically everything that I've read from him is, is absolutely uh, fascinating. And I've initially come across him by Verveki, that uh, he's also been on this channel, and you can check out that podcast if you haven't. I believe he's also acquainted to Daniel, uh, I believe. Maybe he has a colleague, maybe he has a friend, I'm not quite sure. He has also been on the channel. I think he was my second um, guest on the show, uh, which makes it quite funny because that makes it like a third of all my guests have been from, you know, from the, the University of Toronto, which I think is quite funny. Um, but so, yeah, hello and welcome, uh, Jun Song Kim. And uh, if you maybe could... Give a little introduction about yourself and what you do. That'd be great. Oh, and thanks for having me. Uh, I didn't actually know that you had Dan on the uh, the podcast. That's funny. Should see if you can get Anderson, then you can get all uh, the entire uh, quadfecta, as it were. Um, yeah. So I'm Junsung. I am a PhD candidate at uh, the University of Toronto. Um, <clears throat> My research kind of loosely speaking looks at the phenomenology and mechanisms of self-transformation, um, in particular practices that encourage the process, um, which I then of course turn around and joke was really just a way to get U of T to let me study magic for a living. Um, so yeah, I am in particular interested in kind of the aspiration to self-transformation, um, like, you know, the project of becoming a wiser person or becoming a more virtuous person is not one that is uh, commonly taken on much to my consternation so um some of my interests are in looking at okay where where does that goal come from um what practices do people use to undertake it uh things like that right uh and so i want to understand a, a little bit more exactly how uh, magic plays into this, uh, into your work in terms of, you know, uh, transformative experiences and then, but maybe, maybe not just experiences, but you know, the, the goal of transformation itself. Uh, do you see magic has kind of one aspect of that in your work or, or, or do you kind of exclusively focus on magic and how does that relate to self-transformation? Like how, how much does one occupy the other? I'd say magic is an aspect of what I'm interested in. Um, it's, I'd say for me, the more fun aspect of what I'm interested in, um, you know, it gets me, it gets me opportunities like this one. Like my, uh, my other work is like, how do we design university programs to make people aspire to be better people? Um, which is, you know, not, not, that's not a small problem. And it's like, uh, it's the backbone of a lot of what I do, but uh, then you start talking about magic, and suddenly everybody wants to talk. <laughs> right. Okay, so uh, let, let's let's talk then. So so let's kind of you know put the cards on the table, and maybe you can get a little bit into what is magic. You know, just a, just a short introduction, and maybe cover the etymology of it and the meaning. I, I think that's always helpful when introducing topics. Sure, sure. Although magic is interestingly one of those words in which the uh, the etymology will not help you. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I guess first let's let's get something straight here, um, because unfortunately, I think uh, you know as much as I love video games and like I run Dungeons and Dragons games and things like that, like I love that kind of thing. They have done magic a grave disservice. Um, 
insofar as just what popular conception of magic is turned into. Um, if you read classical texts of magic, there's no throwing fireballs. Um, it's actually kind of a pity I'd love to throw fireballs, but no, that's not my wheelhouse. Um, so I, I, I guess, sure, let's let's start with the, uh, the etymology because that, that can illustrate why it's not helpful. Um, so the English language gets the word magic from the ancient Greek word for Persian priests, um, the, uh, the magia. Um, and uh, so that might be a very strange place to start because, well, actually, this does help a little bit because the earliest ideas of at least the word magic um, come from these ideas of non-state-sponsored or state-sanctioned religious rituals. It is, it's kind of like, you know, there's the state-sanctioned, okay, here are the Olympian gods and here are our rites and mysteries and worship. And then there's what those other guys do. <clears throat> um, because if you're thinking about, you know, it's it's kind of interesting, like the idea that we now have of magic is kind of a bunch of actually different ways of thinking that all got kind of boiled down together over 2000 years of Christianity. Um, because the Greeks were skilled practitioners of what we would consider magic, honestly, um, as far as like, you know, ancient Greece was littered with mystery cults, um, all sorts of charms, summoning rituals. Um, necromancy actually plays a, a fairly large role in a couple of Greek ethics as far as summoning the dead and offering them libations in exchange for information. Um, th they didn't consider it magic. Magic was what the Persians did. Uh, this is, this is just, this is just what we're doing. Right. Um, so now that said, one of the other concepts that kind of gets bound up in it is this, uh, this notion of, I think the Greek term is goetia, um, sorcery basically because um, these things were originally different uh, different things. And then there's also um, later in antiquity, you get the concept of theurgy, or I I'm almost positive that if you've had Dan on the uh, podcast, that's come up. But um, this idea of invoking the gods in order to achieve uh, magical or mystical effects. Um, and then... <sighs> you can boil down most of Western history into one of two things. And then Christianity happened or, and then Britain happened. Huh. Why Britain? Because <laughs> uh, Britain was in basically like, if you're talking about like the history of like far flung, like places that Britain then showed up and colonized, All right. uh, there's always the, there's, and Britain happened, or you can even just say, and, and colonization happened. Or if you're talking about like the history of Europe itself, you can say, and then Christianity happened. Um, because when Christianity came on the scene, all of these ideas kind of got jumbled up. Uh, because now the ancient Greeks were also the religious rituals of the other guy. Right. Um, so they kind of got bound up with magic. Um, you know, magic, magia in Greek is what gave us the word magus in um in latin 
which has these connotations of magic magician, but also has connotations of charlatan deceiver, et cetera. Um, basically because it's like, no, no, our religious rites and rituals work, but I don't know what these other guys are doing. That doesn't work. Um, or at least that was, was, was kind of the negative connotation, uh, simply because they were an out group and, and the, is that, is that always tied to, uh, if it functions or not, because I always, always had the idea that, you know, when you kind of think that these other people have these rituals and these beliefs that are weird, it's not so much about the functionality of it. Like, in fact, a lot of times in, you know, in very early uh, religious stories and even in the Bible, you know, it's not like it's only one God. So they're not denying the other gods, just that they're false gods or gods that shouldn't be, oh, yeah. you know, shouldn't be worshipped. But but it's, I, oh, yeah. I had the idea that they still think it, it works. Well, so th this is kind of an interesting thing up until the early modern period, right? Um, where if you like crack into Augustine, um is kind of like well yes okay like people are having these like making these like charms and spells and practices and things like that but they're not getting these from angelic forces or gods there's only one god clearly these are demons masquerading as gods um and then you know like you know if you dig into histories on like joan of arc in uh france for instance who her whole thing was she heard the uh i think it was the voice of like saint michael say you know lead lead the french to freedom from the english um because you know welcome to the history of europe and then england happened uh, then like if you look at her trial um basically the thing that she was accused of was like no 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 we believe you heard voices we just don't think you heard the archangel michael or god or a uh, a positive force in the world uh and then kind of in the early modern period, like Europe gets really weird with regards to its approach to magic, where it's kind of like, no, 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 none of this stuff works. But also we have to accuse you of witchcraft and burn you from heresy. But, but like what you mentioned about demons, it, it gets even more complicated because having contact with demons could even be, uh, was even seen sometimes as acceptable as long as it was like, like a saint commanding a demon because a demon was also like just a source of power. So as long as it's like well, within the proper hierarchy of, of that, that it's submitting to gods, then from my understanding, historically they, they've been used like that as well. Oh yeah. Like the lesser key of Solomon is filled with stuff like that. And like the, um, the goetic arts during the Renaissance um, were basically all that, like, hello, demons, submit to the will of divine and give me information. And the church still didn't like it. <laughs> right. So you mentioned the, the difference between magic and, and sorcery. So, so what's the difference exactly? Um, in the mod in modern era, basically nothing. In, in, in ancient, um, uh, you know, civilization, whatever you want to call it. Oh, it was... Um, Basically, so, so th this this gets into an interesting little bit of history, um, where magic was foreign arts, um, whereas I guess you could kind of loosely call like sorcery is like esoteric arts, where like, okay, yes, these are culturally ours, but they're kind of like shh, hush hush and like don't practice in the light of day kind of thing. Got it. Um, so 
In one of your papers, you mentioned uh, several approaches uh, to magic. You know, the you mentioned the the psychological, the sociological, and the anthropo- anthropological. Uh, can right. you maybe explain what those are and how does your work fit into those? Right, and I mean, I, I should say I've revised that. I'm revising that paper. Um, it's currently in a preprint, but. Um, like I've I've done a lot of research over the last year and a bit that uh, I kind of want to plug into that later. So I'd I'd actually say that maybe more properly speaking, there's um, there's kind of two camps in psychology these days. Um, but loosely speaking, um, the psychological camp is kind of the study of magic in terms of magical thinking, um, where the idea is. Okay, like why do at the individual level um, people believe in like witchcraft and demon summoning and things like that? And the psychological approach has historically been like, oh, this is just an aberration in natural human phenomenology and rationality. And our job is to explain it away. Um, Recently, I'd say in the last five years, that camp has actually started to split a little bit. Um, where I'd say the majority is still on the, no, 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 we got to explain this away side of things. Um, but then there's people like, um, oh, what's his name off the top of my head? Uh, Smolensky, I think is his name, Eugene Smolensky, um, who he's recently written a few books. It's like, okay, I've spent 30 years of my career studying magical thinking and the imagination. And my conclusions are, you're not going to get rid of these. If you want like a natural human with the capacity for creativity and rationality and all these other wonderful things, you get magic. There's just, there's no way to, uh, you can take the tiger out of the jungle, but you can't take the jungle out of the tiger kind of deal. Um, the sociological approach is kind of more looking at magic as like a phenomenon um, because sociologists aren't dealing with individual problems of human rationality. So their take is more, okay, regardless of whether this is a rational thing or not, this is a thing that humans do. Um, Like here's kind of like the social group dynamics of magic. And here's um, like, I'd I'd say kind of typical of this group is um, fellow by the name of Jason Josephson Storm, which like, oh man, like of all the names you can have for a guy who studies magic, that's, that's top tier um but anyway yeah his his take is just like yeah this is just like in, in in particular his case is pushing back on the uh the weberian or weberian depending on where you are in the world idea of the disenchantment um because his take is like no this is this is a load of crock the world has not gotten any less enchanted it's just gotten more weirdly enchanted less uniformly enchanted Uh, as you know while belief in like the christian church has waned i have never seen so many different types of tarot cards in my life (laughs) yeah that that, that's something that really annoys me about about magic and then you know even religion in general people think that we can just that either that we can get rid of it and that's we have in some sense gotten rid of it and that's just it's just so wrong that it just boggles my mind how people even think that. Like it, it has varied a bit, but like the amount of superstition and just 
general pseudoscience is just oh yeah it's just insane i i don't understand how people think that oh yeah and th this is storm's point is that enchantment hasn't gone away it's gotten more individualized um you know thank you internet now like everybody can find a niche um okay. and so what, what's the anthropo anthropological blend so the anthropologists, I think, are the, the these are the people that I have the most intellectual respect for because they're the sort of people that have to ask a question of, well, why did we do this in the first place? Right, because they're they're looking at humanity from a species level, and so they're having to go, well, okay, humans are clearly not stupid, um, like, and like a lot of magic is like very very taxing from an evolution from like an energy point of view right um you know if your goal is survival magic is a very expensive thing to do with your calories um as well as your time that you could be using for hunting and things like that so the question that the anthropologists were forced to ask is well why do we do this um and as a result, they've been kind of the most charitable towards it because they've been the ones that have been forced to actually look at what the benefits of magic are as opposed to, well, this is just irrational. Well, yes, but as it turns out, certain forms of irrationality are actually beneficial to survival. Uh, and I mean, th this is also the one that has the longest standing tradition. Like, um, you can loosely, I think most people loosely trace the anthropology of magic back to uh, James Fraser, although uh, the book, The Golden Bow, although he had a couple of uh, predecessors. Also, Fraser was an armchair anthropologist. Um, so t take everything he says with a grain of salt. But um, kind of the, uh, the queen of the field at the moment is uh, Tanya Lerman's work, which... Um, Oh, man. Like in the in the last year, like as an academic, it is very interesting to see something that is like clearly somebody's magnum opus. Um, and so, in the last year, she's like put out some work that's basically okay. And here is my one was persuasion is the original. Here's my twenty five year long research project on loosely speaking magic, and kind of more specifically what it means to make something that is imaginary feel real. Um, going all the way from like loose and like thick anthropological qualitative description, boiled all the way into psychometrics. Um, That's like, amazing. I have, to, I have to check her work out. No, her work. Um, awesome. So, so how does those, those three perspectives uh, appear in your work? How, how does your work relate to it? Um, I mean, the nice thing about being a cognitive scientist is you get to steal everybody else's work and you don't actually have to belong to one. <laughs> um, so there is kind of emerging a fourth camp, um, even before I got here, um, which was the cognitive science camp, which was basically people trying to say, no, we can have a cognitive science of magic and esotericism. That is possible. Um, look, all we have to do is like frame magic or esotericism in the correct way. And then like once we have like a working scientific definition of it, then we can start studying it. Um, and when was that, by the way? Uh, kind of starting around like 2010-ish. Oh, so very, very recent. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like last 10, 15 years. 
ish. Um, this is people like um, Sorensen, I think is uh, his name. Egil Asperum is like another big name in this kind of area. Oh, I, I, I am a big fan of Asperum's work because it's, I deeply admire the work of people who are like, clearly you would be a fascinating person to talk to at a bar. <laughs> Um, because he is like he is very clearly well read in both like cognitive science and the history of Western esotericism. But speaking from experience, it takes a very weird mind to think, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna stick them together. That's a good career choice, right? <laughs> um but uh yeah, anyway, so my take on it is actually we already actually have a scientific research project on magic. We just have to get all the pieces of it to start talking together. Um, because psychological ritual work on ritual exists, right? Um, all the stuff on like mindfulness meditation and stuff like that, that, that all exists. Like if you take the toolbox of a working magician um, that you can kind of examine through an anthropological lens, like you can use anthropology to say, okay, like what are the toolboxes of um, a practitioner of magic and then say, okay, what is this piece? What is this piece? What is this piece? What is this piece? My take is we actually already have established research programs on all of the individual pieces. We just need to force them all to talk. Um, yeah, that's, that's something that I, that I really like about, uh, cognitive science in general is, is this ability to like put things together in a coherence matter and, and that has like an overall uh framework because before i before i started uh, looking into cognitive science that that's something that i've i mean i've always been interested in like philosophy and psychology and, and religion and all that and what i've always thought was like why are these separate they shouldn't be these are all the same things it's just a slightly different angle and these need to be put together and then when i discovered that well there's actually a few that kind of tries to do that and i was just like my mind is just blown. Um, but yeah, that, that, that's, that's a, that's a good, um, you know, description of it. And, and, uh, and I've kind of, I, I see that thread uh, in your work and it seems very, very fruitful. And I'm very hopeful about the, the field in general in the future and how, how's it going to turn out. So you mentioned theoretical magic versus practical magic. So maybe let's try to get a bit into that of how, how does this stuff actually uh, works and, and what are different aspects of it that people can better understand uh, that are not, you know, very abstract, but like how people actually practice these things and thought about it. Right, right, right. So um, the difference between theoretical and practical magic was kind of first, I think, posited by Fraser, um, where Kind of his take is the practices themselves and the framework that people use to explain them are not quite the same thing. Um, as I think uh, he refers to one of them, I think it's theoretical magic as uh, kind of like the, to use unfortunate 19th century language, the bastard half-sister of uh, science. Where it's like, here's people doing things and here's people trying to explain it. They're clearly wrong because I am an Englishman and I know everything. Um, 
I apologize to any listeners who are from Britain. I'm half British myself. Um, so take, take this um, slight ribbing of British intellectual and political history with the self-mockery that it's coming with. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, so, and actually th there's even kind of a, a more modern distinction um, that, uh, that Lerman has started using, which is her argument is that loosely speaking, like magical talent or talent for imaginal practices or skill in imaginal practices has three components. Um, the first is there is a natural talent for it. Um, some people are naturally more inclined towards imaginal practices than others. Um, and what's actually kind of cool is that she's managed to like kind of loosely quantify magical talent, which has all sorts of fascinating implications. <laughs> How does that look like? Um, Oh, it's basically, there, there are a few scales that measure the uh, vividness of somebody's imagination. And kind of the more fundamentally vivid your imagination is without any sort of outside intervention, um, that's, that's more or less a uh, loose measure of magical uh, talent. Does implicit learning play a role as well? Or does she not include that in? Um, I mean, I could make an argument that implicit learning plays a role, but no, it's basically just purely like how um, the, the kind of factor that it measures is referred to as absorption, which is like how inclined are you to become fully absorbed into sensation? And that also, that also related to uh, being suggestible, right? Yeah, yeah loosely, loosely. Um, I mean, there's an argument made that a lot of magic is just auto-hypnosis, but um, anyway. So that's the concept of there being like talent for this kind of thing is like a third angle that she's brought in. But her other two pieces of the puzzle loosely map onto practical and theoretical magic. Um, one is like the actual like practice and the skill set that you learn um, as a uh, as a magician. Um, but, and then the third is the kind of like cultural sphere of expectations that you bring into it. Um, so the example that she uses is, um, Christians learning to talk to God, for instance. Um, one of the things that that involves is having to learn to perceive your own mind as being permeable to some outside force. Um, and what she's found is that there is cultural variation in the assumption of how permeable the mind is. Um, for instance, I think what she found is that like people in like Ghana and India, um, the, the cultural expectation of your mind being permeable is higher than in, say, the United States. Um, and so then what she's found is that it is easier for people in those cultures hold it, if even holding like talent and training constant um, to experience God talking to them because they're not fighting their own instincts quite as much. Um, hmm. um, so I, I don't think I've seen you mention this. Uh, maybe you did, but, but uh, I'm not recalling. But I, I follow this weird 
YouTube channel that makes some crazy book reviews and book openings. And he's very into magic. And at the time when I first started watching his videos, I was actually, you know, very condescending towards magic. I was like, this is just dumb. Uh, but for some reason, his videos had, um, I don't know, a strange, a strange captivation on me. Uh, maybe just because I didn't know anything about it, but uh, I really enjoyed, uh, watching him a bit talking about magic and it seemed, it seems so complicated. It's just, it's just beyond, uh, comprehension. But one of the things that I've seen him mention a lot uh, that I don't think I've seen in your work is that uh, very big differences in Western magic versus Eastern magic. And I'd like you to talk a little bit about that. I agree and I disagree. <laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, maybe this is because, um, you know, me being both a cognitive scientist and therefore kind of interdisciplinary by training, as well as from a mixed cultural background and therefore kind of interdisciplinary by nature. Um, I can see where somebody who is from a singular background is coming from with the, oh man, Eastern magic is really different than Western magic. But not really, actually. Um, it's, and I mean, it depends on where you go, right? Like, I'd say there are aspects of Taoist magic that overlap surprisingly well with Wicca. Um, on Myoji in Japan, you can rewrite the formulae and basically end up at Western Hermetic magic. Um, because the symbols are very different. Um, the way that the universe is carved up, the kind of the theoretical magic, shall we say, is very different. Um, but if you strip away the theoretical magic and look purely at the practical magic and then take basically the of what my work is trying to do and take the lens of cognitive science and kind of as, um, yeah, basically, spoiler alert, my, my take is that you should if we want to have like a cognitive science of magic, the project actually needs to be to replace theoretical magic with cognitive science. Um, but well, not replace it. Like cultural understanding is always going to be a thing, but you should theoretically be able to explain all the practical magic in terms of cognitive science. Um, but yeah, if you put the cognitive science frame on it and look at both Western practical magic and Eastern practical magic, they end up looking very similar, despite the fact that their respective cultural theoretical magics do not look wow. the same at all. Yeah, that, that's that, that's pretty cool. And I think it actually attests to the project of the cognitive science of magic, because that's it's almost exactly what you would what you would predict, right? Because there's cultural variation, so like the, you know, kind of the the systems that they employ uh, are going to be different, you know, depending on the the cultural and and the the conditions and their uh, ecology. Uh, but then what they're trying to do is basically the same thing. So uh, that's a pretty big strength and a pretty big suggestion that there's actually something uh, going on. Uh, underneath it maybe not what we typically think of it but you know something valuable and something uh, worth looking into for sure so something that i would like you to explore that, I, that i'm trying to get my my mind to grasp better is how does magic relate to shamanism because they're clearly they're clearly related but they, they, it doesn't strike me as the same thing um, and maybe it's just my preconceptions of what magic is in part because of what you said in the beginning of of you know that we have a very stereotypical 
you know, not very accurate uh, description of it. Uh, but, you know, if you think about how at least the common culture perceives magic in like medieval Europe uh, of like, I don't know, crystal ball and I don't know, evoking. I mean, you, you can see a lot of a lot of the same themes uh, through uh, through shamanism, but, you know, it, it still feels different. Mm -hmm. So what exactly are the similarities and the differences between them? Um, I mean, the kind of flippant answer to this is like, you see in like fantasy media all the time, people talking about like, ooh, old magic, not like, like this like modern wizardry. Shamanism is basically like real world old magic. Um, it's kind of the the source material. And I mean, if, you, if you're familiar with uh, with Verveke's work, you've heard all the stuff about like the axial revolution and psychotechnologies and stuff like that. Um, my take on it is kind of that like every culture kind of like abstracted certain elements of shamanism in order to arrive at their hallmark psychotechnologies. Uh, so basically what every culture did is they took like an element of magic and decided to like take it and absolutely run with it. So like Greece took like observation of patterns in the natural world because um, Dirty little secret about the history of science that most people do not like having spread around. Um, Bacon almost wholesale ripped off the scientific method from Renaissance esotericists uh, who thought that nature was keeping secrets from them. And the only way to define the truth of nature was to try and trick it into a contradiction. <laughs> um, yeah, basically it's like, Magic has been observing the natural world for a very, very long time. And then the trick is, can you replicate a natural phenomenon artificially? Which is, hey, look, congratulations, you have arrived at science. Um, but, you know, it's not just that, right? Like, basically, the ancient Middle East took, like, the narrative cosmology angle of magic and really ran with that. Um, <clears throat> India took the skills of manipulating the mind and the imagination and abstracted and layered and systematized those to an absolutely mind-boggling degree. Um, China took an interesting combination of things where China kind of took like the concept of ritual and really, really blew it up. Um, because like there's a ritual system to basically like effort, uh, like um, John and I have had a back and forth on this for a while, and we think that like the quintessential Chinese psychotechnology that you get out of the Axial Revolution is the uh, the Chinese concept of Li, which you can translate that as ritual, um, but it's more commonly these days like translated as like propriety or just like correct behavior. But basically, the idea that there is role and system and order to human society and people need to play those roles in that like you enact certain things um there's also an argument to be made that like all of chinese medicine is just systematized shamanism um which i don't know i say that and then people are like aha and that means it doesn't work well actually no it does work it works in a like do you know how hard it is to reliably invoke the placebo effect for everything um <laughs> Maybe that's a good place to start as well, because kind of what made me see magic in a different way was exactly the, the placebo effect. Because it's it's this shift in like perspective of how of how you think reality works. Because because kind of the, the, the normal approach 
in our you know materialistic uh, scientific worldview. It's kind of to think of placebo as if it's it's the negative of something not working. It's what you compare it to to see if something is working. Therefore, if it's placebo, it's not a causal uh, power, and therefore it doesn't exist. But that's actually not true at all. It does exist, and the fact that you can study it and the fact that you have to compare it to means that it exists. And then people think, well, placebo is just you know just a little this little thing of being suggestible and whatever. Uh, but once you look into it, it's it's. It's fascinating to a degree that it's it's barely comprehensible. And then once you start thinking about it, that's pretty damn close to magic. If <laughs> when you like, it's just that people are very advert. You know, they have a repulsion to it, to to the to the topic and and to the to the word itself. Uh, so maybe you can touch a bit on the you know the parallel of of placebo and magic and what what these two have in common. I mean, that's a bit of a tricky one because like you know. Much like there are individual differences in absorption, there are individual differences in um, in hypnotizability and suggestibility, right? Um, which basically means that there are individual differences in susceptibility to the placebo effect. Um, so, one of the things that I always have to be careful of is I am not advocating that we replace like chemical and like physical medicine with. Medicine. Um, that is absolutely not what I'm advocating at all. Like, if you have cancer, go to an oncologist. Um, like, I'm sorry, but like, do do not do not witchcraft until it's the absolute last option you have. Um, because the thing is that, like, you know, magical rituals for curing cancer will work on like 10 to 15 percent of the population while chemotherapy will work on about 90% of the population. So chemotherapy is therefore significantly more reliable and probably better in most cases. Uh, but you also have to think of it in terms of like um, not having access to chemo, right? Like if, you know, both of us are like ancient tribes people and my tribe has a shaman and like 10% of us can be fixed through shamanic healing rituals, and your tribe does not have a shaman, and therefore none of you can be fixed or shamanic healing rituals. My tribe's going to survive better than your tribe. And, and that was basically exactly what happened because medicine that actually works is surprisingly recent. It's like two hundred years old at best. And like everything else besides it, ninety-five percent either made no difference or it made it worse. So the placebo there was well. You can get a decent amount out of basic herbalism a lot of the time, actually. Like. One of the things that people need to remember is that like a lot of modern chemical medicine is just old herbal medicine that has had like everything other than the effective components stripped well, away. Well, first of all, I think it depends a lot of the culture that you're thinking. Like, I mean, I'm kind of talking a bit out of my ass here. I'm not sure if this actually applies, but the idea that I have is that I would have a lot more trust in herbal uh, medicines from tribal people than medieval society. I'm not exactly sure why. Maybe it's just a preconception that I have of what I've read. I, I think I think that's a bit of an unfair bias. Um because like <sighs> medical history loves to demonize itself. I don't know why. Um but like because everybody's just like, oh everybody in the medieval era was like snake oil salesmen, things like that. And I mean like yeah, like when you're not like running on like germ theory and stuff like that. I mean, there's one thing, but like they had some basic stuff to uh they had some basic stuff figured out. Like um 
basically there was a lot of like we don't know why this works we just know that like if we do this to you you survive better than if we don't do it to you um because you know there's a reason why medicine and um magic have gone together historically a lot of the time right um so the issue that you end up having is a similar split between practical medicine and theoretical medicine um Medieval theoretical medicine is all over the place. Medieval practical medicine, not horrible. I still would prefer to live now because like, um, again, I like joke with a friend of mine, the microbiologist, um, where modern medicine is really only better at three things than medieval medicine. Um, anesthetic, invasive surgery, and, and antibiotics. Well, those are pretty big. <laughs> big advancements yeah. it's like those are pretty big advances let's not right. lie <laughs> this, this is that example is actually a perfect illustration of of the problem of theoretical uh, versus practical magic and, and in this case medicine because you can say that practical medicine worked or at least they or at least it was it was experienced as working but for example something that really affected early medicine was, for example, survivorship bias, for example. And that's that's something almost impossible to get rid of unless you have modern knowledge of psychology and statistics. Oh. It, it's, it's really hard. I mean, I, I, I'd absolutely... Yeah. Yeah, because the, the issue that you get is... Um, yeah, but like really... I think really the only thing that modern medicine has on older medicine, aside from like surgery, anesthetic, and, antibio and antibiotics, is reliability. Uh, because we have figured things out like dosage, for instance, and like, okay, no, 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 like you actually only need like this one like molecule that is found in this particular flower. You don't need to eat the entire thing. There's also the opposite problem because you mentioned that you know a lot of modern medicines just just come from plants and, and some of them have been used forever and that's true, but you also get the opposite problem sometimes. It's just that you know sometimes you can get this medicine from a plant, but maybe the plant only has 0.5% of that medicine, so it works. But it works because it works a little bit because you can't just eat one kilo of leaves. Like you'll probably get poisoned by some other chemical. Yeah, exactly. So again, that for me, that's a reliability thing, right? It's right, like, right. we know exactly what component of this leaf you need to eat and in what quantity. And we can do it in such a way that you don't also get like arsenic poisoning <laughs> alongside it. <laughs> right. um, so something that I, that I really liked on one of your papers was how you connected the rubber hands illusion to magic. So maybe explore that a little bit. And for those people that maybe I'll, I'll just leave it to the cognitive science since that's, that's your expertise. So people who are not familiar with it, uh, I mean, maybe if you study psychology, you've probably encountered it at some point, but if you have uh, a hand, if, if your own hand or your own arm is not visible to you, and then you have a fake arm or a fake hand, and that hand is touched at the same time that your real hand is, then you start to get this feedback that whenever the fake hand is touched, then you feel it. And then after a while, if you do that enough times and you get an association, and then, you know, it, it basically if someone kind of tries to hammer your hands, you'll recoil automatically. You're like you can't even choose not to. So it's a pretty fascinating uh, experiment and it's, it's a classic of, of psychology, but it's, it was the first time I've seen you, uh, I've seen someone make a connection with magic. So how exactly do you make that argument? 
Well, I mean, you know, th this is for me kind of a paradigmatic case of uh, everything looks funny if you squint at it. Um, because one of the like big things in Western magic and like Eastern magic also has this, but they use different words for it. Um, but like one of the big things in Western magic and especially modern Western magic is this concept of an astral body. Um, or like a, or it's also called a subtle body. Like here's your physical body, but there's another body that you have that is kind of also you. And in a lot of magical practices, it's this subtle body that magic is actually playing on, right? Like, um, for instance, if you were to use shape-shifting magic, it's not your physical body that changes into a wolf. It's your subtle body that changes into a wolf, um, which has differing characteristics and such like that. But... Um, so, you know, this is kind of an aspect of, and this is also what you, people use for like astral travel or like out of body experiences or things like that. Like this is the thing that lets you leave your body. Um, and then, I don't know, my favorite thing with scientists is like, ah, yeah, there's no such thing as magic, but uh, oh yeah, by the way, using like two mirrors, a mannequin and a paintbrush, we can shove your soul out of your body. <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> what, like what, what do you think this is? um because like the the rubber hand illusion has been scaled up to like full-blown experimentation with the feeling of ownership over a particular area of space um so my my current favorite is what's called the invisible body illusion um which is you put a headset on somebody and like it has the like same perspective as the camera and you synchronously like stroke a paintbrush along their entire body along with like stroke a paintbrush through empty air so that the visual signal that is going to like your headset and the tactile signal that's going to your body matches the visual and tactile signal of a brush moving over empty air. And if you can do that, then you attack the space of empty air with a knife and people don't like it. <laughs> I imagine. <laughs> something that I that I find a bit weird, and, and maybe you can uh, kind of explain that to me a little bit, is that th these kind like seeing this type of science where it shows how malleable your perception of the body is, kind of seems. To, I'm, I'm sure it doesn't, and I'm I'm sure you're gonna argue against it. But the, the way it looks to me at the first intuition is it kind of seems to go against the principle of embodied cognition. Because the embodied cognition is like, your cognition is in the body and it's kind of spreads out. But these types of experiments, at least to me, seem kind of to suggest that actually your experience seems very uh, generated by the brain alone. And the body is actually can be malleable very, very easily. So how, how are these perspectives clashing? Um, because I would say that this experience is still being generated by your body. Right? Like you need your body in order to experience that tactile uh, sound. Uh -huh. Right? It's just that there's misdirection involved that is relocating that tactile sense. Mm -hmm. right, right, right. That makes sense. So it's not that your body is no longer involved in the processing. It's just that your locus of experience just happens to not be in your body at the moment. Mm -hmm. yeah, uh, like that, that I think the thing that it's interesting is that it turns out that you can completely separate the locus of, or like the experienced center of control and experience 
yeah, you can just take that out of somebody's body. Like your your body is still here. Your body is still running all of the processing. It's just that your locus of experience is not here anymore. Mm-hmm. Got it. So this is a good topic to get into. Um, I, I I don't think I've seen you mention this, but I'm I'm gonna guess that you know a lot about it because it's pretty pretty related. So let's talk a bit about astrology, and and I like this example because um, because it's it's something so easy to. I mean, you just seem so excited. I just <laughs> you just can't contain it. Thing. Everybody always asks about astrology. <laughs> But I'm going to tell you why I'm mentioning astrology. No, it's not no, 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 please, 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 go on, go so, because on. It's, it's so easy, <laughs> because it's so easy from a modern perspective to just, like, completely ignore it. And it seems completely reasonable to ignore it. It just seems batshit insane. It makes no sense whatsoever compared to uh, our understanding of how the universe works and how the planets work. Um, but something that really kind of, I don't know, made me feel very weird about it and not only changed how I look at astrology but made me change how I look about any of this more esoteric stuff was uh, reading Jung and, and I, know, I know that you don't like Jung very much but he mentioned oh. astrology yeah sorry but I'm, I'm apparently a little infamous for that <laughs> <laughs> you are you are um, but you know he mentioned a bit of astrology and, he, and, and I can't quite uh, explain it here because I didn't understand it very well myself. Uh, like his writings on alchemy are already pretty hard and astrology, I found it even harder. Uh, but even though I didn't fully understand what he was trying to get at, I, I just had this underwhelming sense that there is something to it. And I was dumb to just completely disregard it. I don't mean that in a metaphysical sense, but I mean it in a psychological sense. And so, uh, and for me, that was kind of a wake up call because astrology was kind of, you know, if there's a spectrum of what I consider respectable, astrology was like so much at the bottom that's you know there's not that much there and so if that can make me you know kind of not dismiss it right off the bat and that there's something to it maybe not what most people think but something to it um you know i think that's pretty strong case for magical things in general so yeah shoot me i know that you love astrology okay i should preface this by saying i don't like astrology (laughs) (laughs) who would have known I have a reasonably reasoned argument for why I don't like it, but I am forced to admit that at the end of the day, given everything else that I have my fingers into, this is a bias. Um, The bias, I think, largely comes from astrology being really one of the only branches of magic that's contradictory. Uh, Because... Like, whose astrology are we running on? You want ancient Babylonian astrology? Do you want, like, modern, like, Greek-derived astrology? Do you want, like, Indian astrology? Do you want, like, Chinese astrology? Like, these are all different things. And unlike other Western or Eastern systems of magic, right, where you can kind of impose different metaphysics onto the world in order to have different systems that work, it's the same sky, (laughs) Like, these individual points of light cannot be, like, I don't know, I don't know. Basically, it's like, I I find it, like, yes, there are ways that you can make it work, but I find it very difficult to accept a system where the same point of light at the exact same point in space can mean two different things in two systems. Um, well. I find that uh, frustrating. <laughs> I'm not sure how, how that makes it completely impossible, but because you can 
you can make models that work even if your assumptions are wrong. So for example, we can make uh, models of the cosmos uh, that are that are wrong. So for example, the, the model you know between you know the, the, that the Greeks had, like it was wrong, but it still were able to make uh, predictions. And I wouldn't be surprised if you can make the same type of. I don't even know exactly how it works. It's yeah, so complicated. Complicated, oh, sure. but but so, some some kind of pattern recognition, even if the even if it changes the the system, like you oh, sure. put something Absolutely. on top of it. Like, yeah, like here's the thing: is that there's kind of like three layers to my my take on astrology. The first is I don't like it. Because and I don't like it because I am trying to find a system under which like multiple magic systems can coexist, and astrology makes that project very very difficult. Um, the second layer is here's why I acknowledge it works for the practitioners, and then the and then it layers back to but I don't think it'll work for me because of how I process things. Um, so the first layer is. I don't like it because I find it contradictory across multiple systems. And it's one of the very few things where you can't really have multiple systems running on it at once. Um, the second thing is, so this gets into, um, and this paper is actually published. So I'm kind of happy about that. Um, it's a paper called uh, foresight and wisdom, the case of the classic of changes, um, which we use the classic of changes or like eaching divination as kind of the lens through which to explore this but the argument itself works for all systems of divination theoretically um or i guess more specifically they work for all systems of randomized divination um so there's an interesting project at harvard called the prediction project which is an attempt to catalog all human efforts to predict the future. Um, everything from divination to statistics. It's, it's really cool. But in doing so, they also classify methods of predicting the future into several types. Um, and if I remember off the top of my head, kind of three of the more prominent ones are random, um, where just like, this is things like the flights of birds and like clouds and stuff like that, where it's just like the, the Order is so mind-bogglingly complicated that a human mind could not possibly like derive any sort of pattern out of it. Um, flickering flames, things like that. Um, then there is randomized, which is probably the most common, which is there is a set of like fixed things, but they are cast in such a way that it introduces chaos to the system. Um, <clears throat> Tarot card reading, for instance, um, the Yoruba method of divination, that I can't remember how it works off the top of my head, um, casting lots, itching divination, um, all that is randomized because there's a fixed set of symbols, but then you kind of throw them into chaos and out of the chaos, you pull meaning. Um, and then there are fixed systems um under which it's like there there is no chaos here there is no disorder the entire thing is like one big grand cosmic symphony um and astrology falls under this um so the way that randomized systems at least work i think is what you have got is you know basic human capacity for pattern recognition but 
humans are unfortunate creatures in that we are very cognitively slippery. It is actually very, very difficult for us to have a thought or an intuition, grip it and hold it at arm's length and say, okay, why do I think this? Um, that takes years, if not decades of training sometimes. Um, so what things like tarot cards or I Ching divination does is it creates a system where there's kind of loose symbolism associated with every possible combination. But for each individual instance of consultation, it randomizes the system and spits out a random result. And this is where people will say, aha, the Barnum effect. It only looks relevant to your particular situation. Well, that's a feature. That's not a bug. Um, because what I think these things are doing is the randomized symbols are creating almost like flypaper or sticky paper that you can kind of tack your thoughts to and give them something external to hold them while you go over them. Um, so kind of using symbolism, they allow you to project a narrative onto something that is ultimately objectively meaningless. Um, but you can imbue it with meaning and imbuing it with meaning allows you to magnify your ability to examine your own pattern recognition abilities. Um, so the way that I think this potentially salvages astrology is that, yes, technically speaking, astrology is a fixed system because like stars and what have you. But arguably, because each person is different, um, the sheer instance of a person being born randomizes the possible space of, well, this could be in like the first house and here's where this moon is, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, each individual, like, it's kind of one of those, like, it would basically be like tarot card reading if you could only read the tarot cards once and then they were stuck that way for all eternity. That makes sense. Um, so theoretically, that might salvage it, but at the same time, I don't like it because I think the concept of a reading that grand scale is doomed to too many interpretations. Right. Got um, it. I have a slight, if we're talking about like Western Renaissance divination systems, I have a slight bias towards geomancy. Um, I have no idea what that is. You can't explain that a bit if you want. Since, since, uh, since, I, since I forced you to explain something you don't like, <laughs> you should have a counter it's, it's, it, it was kind of like the other like competing system with astrology where basically what people did is like they... Um, Sometimes it involved like throwing dice, sometimes it involved like dotting lines on a sand tray. But basically what you would create is um, a sequence of either one or two dots in order. And that would create a particular image that could be interpreted. Um, it's a little bit like a simplified version of the I Ching, except uh, Western. Uh, you mentioned that, uh, well, in your work, not, not in this podcast, but I've, I've seen you write that meditation is a very big foundation in most uh, magical systems. And we haven't got into meditation yet, but I'm, I'm pretty curious about um, how that relates. So you can flush that out a little bit. Um, sure. It's a basic control exercise. Um, you know, one of the, 
one of the biggest difficulties with learning magic especially honestly for somebody who would be naturally inclined towards it through being high in absorption is having any sort of control over it um so what meditation will teach you is control over your thoughts and images and things like that um you know the various disciplines will allow you to call up a thought when you need it or call up an image when you need it and put it away afterwards um because you know one of the reasons why and like th th this is this is another thing that i'm a little bit cautious about is i don't think most people should do magic honestly um it's it's dangerous <laughs> um because like basically what happen what can happen is if you don't have that kind of control over your own mental processes they can start to become invasive right um you know, I know a few people who were born with natural gifts of empathy that they find very difficult to turn off. So like being around other people is difficult for them because if there's any sort of emotional fluctuations in the room, it hurts them. Um, similar things can happen with magical practice where, you know, if you train yourself to see the world in a certain way, like let's say, or, you know, my personal favorite, the, uh, the people who are trying to practice tulpamancy, Every once in a while on like tulpamancy forums, you see people saying, help, my tulpa won't leave me alone. Tulpa basically being like a somewhere between like a like thought form creation and like an imaginary friend on steroids where you're basically creating a separate entity that lives in your imagination. Um, so people will occasionally write, help, my tulpa won't leave me alone. What do, what do I do? And I'm like, of course it won't leave you alone. You've like made an unbound summoning ritual, you idiot. Like the entire point of most magical practices is to have an off switch. Like this is why Wiccans are like very strict on, no, no, no. You cast a circle before you do anything because the creation of that ritual space creates a mental boundary between your working world and the world in which you have to live in so that the magic does not follow you back. <laughs> um, because like the ability to work in what Susan Greenwood calls magical modes of consciousness is like fantastic for like introspection and processing and stuff like that. You don't want to live that way. <laughs> I also think that that's a, that's a problem of our, of our culture that is very, um, I don't know, very obsessed about this individualistic journey into whatever you're interested in, whatever you want to pursue when these things in the past have been, usually pass down. So for example, a shaman doesn't just, you know, decide to become a shaman and it just, it, it just becomes one. Like there's an insane amount of training from elder shamans. And even that kid was probably chosen. It was, he didn't just decide to, to become one. Um, yep. And so there, there's a whole tutoring process that goes into these things. And that gives some security because even though they may not fully know what they're doing, at least through the test of time, uh, some of the symbols, uh, just out of, you know, just, just because it, it tends to work over time, uh, you know, the symbolism has developed that tends to make these things better. So if you're trying to do it from the ground up and you have no idea what you're doing, well, they're probably going to, probably going to have a bad time. Exactly. Like for like another example, and like, maybe this is why I have less of an issue with the idea that like no magic requires like a whole lot of formal training and maybe not everybody should do this um i grew up doing martial arts which is kind of like a similar bag like 
So it turns out, like, punching people is easy. Punching people safely in a manner that, like, does not injure yourself, that's hard. <laughs> or, like, um, most of my practice these days is uh, sword play. Like, that's another thing. Yeah, hitting somebody with sword, actually not that difficult. Doing so in a way that doesn't get you potentially killed in return, that's much harder. <laughs> right. Um, when I was trying to look at um, at some of your work, which is very obscure, by the way. That that was annoying. Like I had to really dig the internet <laughs> to get some of your work. You should be more yeah. out there because some of it's fascinating. Yeah, some of it, some of it is more out there. Some of it isn't. I don't know. I'm I'm kind of a quiet person personally. Right, but anyway, within that search, I did come uh, to your sword fights, and th this is completely unrelated. But I found it very fascinating. So maybe let's just do a, a little break from magic, and I'm very curious about what what's made you get into it like what did you get out of it and, and what where was that interest in interest born out of because it's not a very popular thing like it's not, like i don't know many people that are in sword fighting i don't know how did you start playing the piano i didn't that, that was my girlfriend but it does have an explanation for her because she she was a musician and she was just attracted uh, to it um well i guess that doesn't explain very much does it <laughs> No, I just realized that. Well, that's fair enough. I mean, you know, Korean family tradition is uh, the kids learn martial arts. Like that's, that's the case most Korean families. Um, and then, like, so I did that for a bit. But then I personally preferred uh, weapons play to um, barehanded. So, and like, you know, I'd always had an interest in medieval history and stuff like that. So first I did fencing lessons. Um, then I did kendo for a bit. Then I switched into traditional Korean swordsmanship. Uh, then I got into historical reenacting, and then I got into um, it's referred to as HEMA or historical European martial arts, um, along with a bit of Tai Chi on the side. So yeah, I don't know. It's kind of just a natural progression. Um, I like it because there's like I am very much not a team sports person. Um, I. I have nothing against them. I just don't find them terribly interesting. Um, and swordplay is kind of like an argument um, in that there is a back and forth between two people's ways of thinking and processing. And yeah, I don't know. I enjoy the uh, I enjoy the back and forth. See, it it does very it does look. Uh, very fun. Uh, this is the is the equipment all what's you know what people used back then, or does it have modifications to make it easier or safer? Oh, uh, I mean, uh, fencing masks are kind of a modern invention. Um, they first start like cropping up, and I think the uh, the early eighteen hundreds, maybe a little bit. Um, but yeah, um, I mean, th this is kind of an interesting trade-off, right? Because one of the things that I am reasonably certain of is because people back then, you know, you'd have a sword in your hand for like several hours a day, every single day of your life from when you were like seven. Um, I'm reasonably certain that their level of control would have been significantly better than ours. So you can get away with less equipment when you have a training partner that really knows what they're doing. Like, um, we'll train without equipment some days that it, well, like we'll wear like clubs and, uh, eye protection and stuff like that. But it's basically just like, yep, you should have enough control by now to, uh, not hurt your opponent. 
but that's a difficult level to hit. Yeah, I, I, I imagine. I mean, I mean <laughs> when, when people, you know, play sports, even when it's not fighting sports, people are going to get hurt pretty easily. So, like, <laughs> if you're trying to simulate a kind of hurting or, or, or even hurting in a playful manner, like in a playful combat, uh, then that, that seems very hard to get it right. And well, and I mean, like, uh, this is the irony, right? That because so much attention is paid to safety because we are doing something that is inherently unsafe. Uh, I've been doing this for like almost 20 years now. Um, I haven't had like a single major injury. Like I've had some like tennis elbow and like um, I botched a, uh, a shoulder roll once, pinched a nerve in my shoulder, but like I've recovered from all of those and I wouldn't count any of them as like major. My sister on the other hand plays more conventional sports and she's had like five concussions. Jesus. <laughs> Did that, so, yeah, it's surprisingly common actually. It's, it's pretty scary. So, uh, yeah, I, I feel perfectly safe doing what I'm doing most of the time, uh, largely because, well, there's a lot of safety equipment involved and the entire name of the game is defending yourself from injury. Right. Gotcha. So. Uh, you know, be before we got into swords, uh, we were talking about uh, <laughs> meditation. And I'm curious about how meditation and hypnosis... and. And I don't think you mentioned a trance in, in your papers, but I would say that's pretty important and kind of in the same realm. In the same realm. Uh, would you consider trance as part of ritual or how, how do you conceptualize this and how these all interact together? I'd say trance and hypnosis. I think like, well, hypnosis is usually something that somebody else does to you, whereas trance is usually something that you do to yourself. Um, the common thread through meditation that both of them has is meditation is really more of a control exercise. Um, like, I don't know, I'm trying to, trying to think of a, a good example. Um, I, I don't really play basketball, but my sister does. Um, meditation is like your, your practice. That is when you practice dribbling the ball and passing it back and forth and, occasionally practicing uh, free throws and stuff like that. Um, whereas trance and hypnosis are like playing the actual game, but trance is like your own side of things, whereas hypnosis is somebody else um, doing it. Maybe basketball was a bad example because you don't want, like, you don't want people to dunk on your net, but hypnosis is basically people dunking on your net. Uh, <laughs> um, I don't know. This is, uh, <clears throat> or maybe dance. Dance is a better way to uh, do it, um, where like meditation is practicing rhythm and footwork and things like that, and trance is practicing leading, whereas hypnosis is practicing following. Um, but uh, yeah, it's kind of a difference between practice and application, I think. Right, and. Since you mentioned, and since you're talking about trance, I kind of got this this image in my head that I'm not sure exactly how accurate it is. But you know, we kind of have this idea of the magician, um, kind of like I don't know, like in some weird part part of the house with a crystal ball and a bunch of potions and stuff, and a very individualistic uh, approach. Uh, but then there's also the other parts of magic, which is like a group together making some enchantments, trying to summon things. Um, mm. So 
I'm, I'm not exactly sure which one. Uh, first of all, how do they interact if they if they were both common throughout history, um, and also if this is an accurate picture or if they, because because it's so hard now to know exactly what's uh, what people did back then because most of, most of our knowledge comes from movies and whatever, and so a lot of, like people that direct those knew what they were doing. So 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 it's hard to have an accurate sense. So how do these indiv- individualistic versus collective practices uh, work out? I mean, you know, like every other craft, you have solitary practice and you have collective practice, right? Um, you know, like uh, COVID has seen me do a lot of fencing drills in my apartment by myself, but we've uh, recently been allowed to start uh, fencing again. So that's been nice. Um, but uh, yeah, the other thing I think that you have to kind of pay attention to is space and time, really, right? Like, there are situations in which the practice of magic is a little bit uh, less acceptable than others. So you kind of stay underground summoning your demons or talking to your angels by yourself Um, because that's safer than being open about it. Um, You know, meanwhile, if you're like pre-Christian Norse, yeah, you can do your rituals publicly as much as you want, right? Like, um and you know these days like most of the wiccans that i know have both a uh private and a public practice um where there's stuff that they do by themselves because it hones their skills and hones their crafts and hones their connection with uh, their gods and then there's stuff that they do together um yeah you know it's like playing basketball with your team versus being at the court solo, doing free throws, because that's an important part of your day. We've talked about magic a lot, but something that I also wanted to get into uh, is psychedelics. Um, so for one, because I'm very interested in psychedelics. Two, because it's also related to magic and wisdom, and also there's a, you know, you can, can have a very fruitful conversation with, with cognitive science as well. And uh, I've read your paper on microdosing, and I found that really fascinating to read because I've had, uh, you know, I've had this this intimation of exactly the the relationship between psychedelics in general with the meaning crisis and also microdosing uh, more specifically. And part of the reason why I'm s- such a fan or enthusiast for psychedelics is because I think there there's such a such an important key to kind of get out of the problem that we have in modern society. You know, it's kind of like, and some people kind of disagree with me, but I think psychedelics are are probably not going to be just a tool, but they're going to be the thing that gets us out of this like hyper materialistic um, culture that we're in. And at the time when I was younger, I was very optimistic about this. And I thought, well, you know, the, the political uh, stigma about it is decreasing uh, because of how useful they are for psychiatry. This is going to all be legalized at some point. It's just a matter of time. And then, you know, this is going to be- have a huge benefic- uh, benefic- ben- beneficial uh, effect on culture. But as I've gotten older, uh, I've seen kind of started to see the dangers of it, uh, n- not for the individuals uh, in particular, even though that can happen as well, but more for society in general. And part of what made that salient to me was precisely microdosing. 
because micro, there's kind of several approaches to psychedelics and kind of one of them we can say is like medicine. People that just need help. They're, you know, they have post-stress, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. They have depression, they have anxiety, whatever. And then there's another group, which is kind of, they, maybe they don't have any serious condition, but they just want to get themselves better. It's kind of like a spiritual journey. But then there's the kind of the productivity element to it that's really, really strong in microdosing. And I'm, I don't think you mentioned that in the paper, but it's kind of like the stereotypical modern Silicon Valley, uh, you know, entrepreneur. And I just, and even though I think psychedelics have such a good uh, promise to help solve the meaning crisis, I see the microdosing has exactly the same, exactly the opposite. Like they're, they're driving us deeper into the problem. Um, mm-hmm. So I would like just your opinion about this this kind of duality of, of psychedelics and, and if you agree with it or you think I'm a bit off base with it. Um, I mean, I'll preface it by saying that I don't think psychedelics in any dose amount are going to solve our problem. Um, largely just because, you know, hammers don't build houses, right? You can use a hammer to build a house. You can also use it to take one apart. You can also use it to kneecap people. It's a hammer. It <laughs> doesn't do anything of its own volition. Uh, and my take on psychedelics is really all I think that they are is an absorption accelerant, um, where if Lerman is correct and absorption is basically base talent for magic, um, psychedelics are kind of artificial magic inducers, um, where they give people like they, all they're really doing is making people's experience a little bit more vivid. Um, and you can have a lot of, you can do a lot of interesting things with that, right? Like, um, for some people it's like, wow, I have never felt more connected to the world around me. This is great. This is deeply profound. What have I been doing with my life? That's not guaranteed. (laughs) Um, so as far as the, uh, the apparent duality of psychedelics, I don't think there is a duality to psychedelics there. I think what you've observed is, uh, people, um, you know, it's like some people use martial arts as a means to pursue self-cultivation and enlightenment and all those other wonderful things. Some people use it to learn how to beat people up. <laughs> it's a practice. It's a tool. There is no good or bad to it. Um, some people use firearms to go hunting to provide for their family. Other people go on murder sprees. Like, Yeah, that's, that's, that's pretty fair. Um, although... You know, it kind of depends how you see. I mean, obviously, it's just a tool, but it kind of depends on how you see the relevance uh, of that tool. And uh, this is actually something that I didn't say, but something that I kind of clump this together. It's 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 not just psychedelics because this is kind of uh, it's kind of a bit broader than that. Because just like I said, this duality of like getting out of kind of some of the problems that we have in our culture. Um, and also, you know, using it for ends that are probably not going to be very productive. This is happening exactly in the same way uh, with a meditation, for example. And obviously, meditation and psychedelics are are very related. Uh, did you see the the controversy with um, Amazon's meditation boots? Oh yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. And that, they're, they're not too. <laughs> 
But that, that, that's exactly what I mean. That's, that's exactly the wrong path that I see uh, being taken. And, and I think that's very related to psychedelics. I, I think it's, it's kind of the same thing. It's kind of like you have this, this option of like you either see that there is a world of meaning that you can pursue and aim at self-transformation or you can just go down the rabbit hole of, you know, just, just materialism and and uh, consumerism and it's it's very odd how how <laughs> how they're it's the same thing and it's launching you for two different things and also the silicon valley this also applies to meditation not just in this really odd thing that you've seen now of amazon as an example but in the sense that people also that like meditation has traditionally been used you know has a religious practice that's achieving you to uh, better wisdom and getting to enlightenment um and now it's used as like you know this this thing that you do has like almost a, like a you know just because you'll feel better and because you'll be more efficient at work like th th that's a very common thing now and to me that that's that's the same problem just manifesting <laughs> in two different ways uh so how do you see this from, from the from the broader aspects of not just psychedelics but but meditation and all these kinds of wisdom practices. Um, people are people. <laughs> you know, show me the history of humanity. When have we ever used what is ostensibly a good thing properly? <laughs> yeah, we're pretty bad at that. It it's, seems uh, the the longer that I spend with like initiatory traditions, like the uh, the Wiccans and um, the Sufis and things like that the more I realize, oh, yeah, this is why you don't teach normal people things. <laughs> um, you know, or like the fencing school that I belong to, we make you do drills for anywhere between six months to two years before you're allowed to swing a sword at somebody. Um, yeah, there's a reason for that. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's like, because unfortunately, the like basics of it is skillful use of any practice is hard. That is why we have specialists dedicated towards their use. Um, well, but that kind of ties with the problem that that I also think this is this is uh, creating because because these practices now are kind of being reemerging in culture. That, have, that are very, very old, but we don't have the specialists anymore. Like, we don't have shamans anymore. We don't have uh, wisdom institutions anymore. So, like, with sure you, you go to martial arts and you have a teacher, but we don't have teachers for these things anymore. Sure we do. You just have to look a little harder for them. Sorry, I didn't hear you all. Yeah, you, you, they exist. You just have to look harder for them these days. One of the things that I think is the problem is that, like, the Internet has made everybody expect that they're going to be able to find these things very easily in their own backyard. That's never been the case. Like, there's all these stories of like, oh, so-and-so went on a pilgrimage or like, um, you know, one of the fencing manuals that we work with is like, you know, it, yes, it took me like 30 years of my life to become a master traveling all around Italy and Germany at like great personal expense. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that is a good point. I think, I think we've been a bit, bit spoiled in our modern culture that yeah, when and, you put like, it that way, it's... And like we, we we kind of touched on my infamous dislike of Jung earlier in the uh, earlier in the show, but uh, this is actually kind of the core of my infamous dislike of Jung. 
is I personally think he was very, very irresponsible in letting a bunch of things just out there. Um, because most people don't know how to process or use the stuff that he kind of just left lying around. Um, like learning these things is hard. Like I consider myself at this point vaguely okay with a sword and I've been at it for like 15 years. Um, you know, I've been at Tai Chi for eight and I've been at like meditation for about 10 ish. Like these are things that take a very long time to learn. Um, and I think modern culture has made us expect, oh, this should be easy or there should be a quick fix for things. Nah, things are hard. You have, you have to put some work in. Um, and that's why I don't think like anything like psychedelics or meditation is going to fix anything because I think nothing is going to be fixed until we realize that the fix isn't going to be fast. Um, until we as a culture are willing to put 10 or 20 years into something, nothing's going to happen. Yep. Those are good points. Something that I'd like to touch on as well is, um, I read your, I think it's your more, I think it's your latest study, at least the latest that I could find about personal growth in the COVID lockdown. Oh yeah. 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 We were happy about that one. Yeah. So that was very cool. Uh, I really liked it. And so maybe explain a bit on the background of the study. Like what, what were you trying to achieve and why did you decide to study this? Right. I mean, one thing that I'll preface is like, I only consider myself technically first author on that one. Um, I barely even consider it my study. because It was like, there's this checklist that the American Psychological Association um, uses to determine author order on papers. And I ended up first purely because I was doing all of the bureaucratic uh, stuff for it. Um, as far as like the organization and the like actual like submitting and responding to reviewers and things like that. Um, but it was very much a group project. Um, <clears throat> so it actually came out of uh, one of the other authors on the uh, paper, Stephanie, kind of way back at the, at the beginning of like social distancing and lockdown, wondering how people were spending their time um, during lockdown. Like, what are people filling their days with? Um, and so... <clears throat> that got leveraged in kind of a lab project and everybody brought their pet measures into it to kind of see, yeah, what are people doing? And like, what is what people are doing during this insane time doing to them? Um, so, yeah. And like, you know, as you can read the paper, but like what we ended up finding is the best predictor um, once you've controlled for like pre-pandemic well-being, the best predictor of current well-being is um, achieving some degree of self-transcendence. And when we split the sample and looked at, um, you know, what are people who are high in transcendence doing versus what people in lower transcendence doing, um, people who are high in transcendence were finding ways to spend time with family, trying to maintain their connections, reevaluating their life, 
a couple of people got very political. Those were very interesting ones to read um, versus the people who were low in self-transcendence were just like, yeah, I've been playing a lot of video games um, and like not in a because like the higher transcendence group also mentioned playing a lot of video games, but they did it in the sense of, yeah, I've been like scheduling time with my friends to like play video games over co-op so that we can hang out and talk to each other. Um, versus there was really no mention of the social element of it in uh, the lower transcendence group. Um, and there was a lot of things like, yeah, I mean, I've been buying groceries. That was the highlight of my week. Um, so, yeah, it's one of these groups was living. The other group was surviving. Mm -hmm. And was there, uh, I mean, I've, I didn't have time to study the, the study very in depth. I, I just kind of skimmed it. Um, did you try to find out why those different uh, responses occur? Like obviously you said that, you know, people who are interested in, you know, improving themselves and trying to have meaningful connections and whatnot, uh, they have, you know, more positive outcomes and what, whatnot. Uh, but what, what led to that perspective in the beginning? Was that something that you tried to find yeah. out? I mean, this is what I'm trying to find out with my thesis work is basically like, where do these projects of like, yeah, I'm going to try and use this time to be a better person. Where does that even come from? Because like the only difference that we found between like the high transcendence and low transcendence group demographically is that the high transcendence group was more likely to be religious, which I mean, that's not nothing. That's kind of interesting. That already speaks of a basic orientation towards like growth and thinking that things beyond yourself are important, et cetera, et cetera. But that can't be the only thing. But it was the only thing that we dug up that was statistically significant. Right. And has there been any work looking into it, into this that hasn't you know been specific to COVID, but that maybe tried to look into how, how what affects these perspectives on different people? <sighs> Surprisingly little. Like there's some stuff on like, okay, what does like personal projects pursuit have to do with um, the pursuit of virtue. And then there's stuff like, oh, what does um, an orientation towards virtue, what effect does that have on wise reasoning and things like that? But there's actually been very little that I've been able to find on people just asking the basic question, why do people decide to become better people? So, um, yeah, you, you mentioned that uh, your thesis uh, was, was related to that. Can you, first of all, uh, what exactly, what stage of the thesis are you on? And maybe you could explain a bit what is it about and what are you trying to achieve? So I'm at the uh, everybody's favorite stage of a research project, which is cleaning the goddamn data. <laughs> um, fortunately, my data is particularly messy because it's time series data, which is a nightmare. Um, but more or less what I'm trying to find is one can we use this research method that we've been using to identify aspirations in a student population? Like, you know, there's goals, um, which are like, I want to get an A in this course, or like, I would like to get my degree or things like that. But like, those are things that have a like very clear specific endpoint, um, And they don't actually involve the student changing all that much. Um, what I'm looking for are what Agnes Callard refers to as aspirations. These are kind of ongoing pursuits that result in the transformation of the person. Um, you know, somebody saying like, I would like to be kinder. 
that seems that seems like a good way to do things or like i would like to be slightly wiser or like things like that so um the question that i'm basically asking is like what are, i'm basically phrasing it as what are the five like most like top of mind things to you right now um because i don't want people to have to dig for their aspirations um you know like this is there are ways that i could eventually get to that like things like hey like give me 15 projects and choose the 10 most important the reason why i ended up constraining it to five is because i want to see what these people are most fixated on um and it turns out that the single like the most common projects among undergraduate students are get a good grade in this course um get my degree get married go to the gym more regularly go to medical school like that's great a little boring <laughs> um so mostly what i'm interested in is like okay like what percentage of the student population actually like spontaneously reports aspirations turns out very few very few people um and then the next question is well okay if we have like if i study the students who are kind of in a course that's on more like aspirational subject matter um like, you know, self-transcendence, wisdom, virtue, meaning, stuff like that, versus students who are in like a bog standard cogsite class. Do I find like per capita more people interested in like more people with aspirational projects in the aspirational class? Um, so basically kind of from a perspective of if we build it, will they come? Like, you know, like if we have these classes on more aspirational subject matter, does this start pulling people out of the woodwork? Um, and then next phase of the project is, all right, cool. And then once we found those people, can we give people aspirations? Like, you know, here's our class on like aspirational subject matter or like, you know, here's a class on aspirational subject matter, but it's all essay based versus like, oh, we want you to like read the biography of a saint or something like that and like tell us things about his life or like try to live according to a particular philosophy for a day. If we like ask people like once a month, so what what are some important things to you at the moment? Do more of them start reporting aspirations as they're exposed to ideas like wisdom, virtue, meaning, things like that? um because this is the question that i find very interesting that like nobody seems to ask everybody's always like okay like once people care about like becoming wiser um can we make them any wiser that's great i'm more interested like can i make people care about this to begin with <laughs> which, which seems <laughs> a much bigger problem yes yeah it's like the problem is not like getting people from point b to point c the problem is getting people from point a to point b right and what what do you have like any research ideas of where you want to go after you finish your thesis? You have stuff planned. Out? <sighs> oh God! I mean, like, I think one of the things that I might start doing is like trying to study these sorts of things in like specific groups. Like, it would be really interesting. Like, get like, hey, can I like get a bunch of Sufis to like do this as well? And like, all right, I've done this in the university context. Can I like do it among like spiritual practitioners? Like. What is the difference between like if I like, you know, go to like a church versus go to like specifically a mystical community? 
what do like does like the actual like practice of mysticism do anything like yeah basically i'm just now trying to figure out how do we make people dream a little bit bigger because you know like i see all the problems that we were talking about earlier right like um you know if you give it's like let's share let's give people psilocybin like this could like give you an awakening experience and like make you feel more connected to reality cool i'm going to eat very tiny amounts of it every single day so that i'm more productive at work that's not a failure of the substance that's a failure of the aspirations of the person so my question is okay but how do we fix that problem because that's the actual issue and do you think that maybe psychedelics have a use in answering that question because a very peculiar thing about psychedelics is because they seem to precisely make that jump it's like you you like they almost force you to want to change like it's very normative i personally have not seen that effect um i don't think that's a thing that really spontaneously happens i think that is something that a lot of studies have failed to control for um like it would be absolutely, it would be absolutely fascinating to like get people's like personal projects before psychedelic dose and after psychedelic dose right because the thing that i'm concerned about is that i think the only people you know, like the majority of people who are interested in psychedelics at a baseline which is what causes control issues are people who are interested in change right like if I say, hey, do you want to participate in a study on mind-altering drugs? If you don't want your mind altered, you don't participate in that study. That's kind of just how this works. Um, it's what makes placebo-controlling psychedelic studies so difficult. Mm -hmm. uh, but within, within kind of uh, studies on mental health kind of uh, change that a bit? Because a lot of times you're, you're producing changing people that you can say, okay, fine, they wanted to change because, you know, no one wants to be depressed and no one wants to be addicted, but they've, they've tried and, they, and they, they failed. So it's, it's forcing them to make that, you know, that gap and to kind of get to that point. Oh, sure. But that's, that's showing people a way forward on an aspiration they'd given up on. That's not giving people a new aspiration. You know, that's, um, that's like saying somebody, oh, you know, it's like, I, I've tried to like go to like school and like, I'd love to get my degree and stuff like that, but it just doesn't like work with my schedule and I have to take care of the kids. Like, well, I know this program that has free childcare and uh, lets you do night classes. Right. It's like, here's a way forward that maybe you hadn't thought of before. That's not, it's not giving them something new. It's giving them a new way to work on something that they've given up on. Uh, Good point. Yeah. Uh, so, Trying to connect it to, to the magic that we talked before. Uh, how do you see the work on magic kind of interplay with all of this, with, with a drive to get better? Like, so do you, do you think there there's a connection uh, with wisdom and kind of setting ambitions for yourself, and also the underlying cognitive process of magic, or do you think oh, yeah. you kind of put them on different boxes? I mean. Nobody gets into magic who doesn't want to feel some sort of transformation. Like that's kind of the entire thing with magic. Um, like magic is the set of psychotechnologies by which people achieve transformation. Um, it can be a basic transformation of perception. It can be transformation of their, themselves, the way that they live the world. Um, 
you know, things that are referred to as black magic are almost universally transformation of other people without their consent. Um, don't, don't do magic to other people without consent kids. It, one, it rarely works and two, it usually backfires. Um, but you know, this is something that, uh, my advisor furry and I talk about every once in a while, which is there's kind of like mundane forms of transformation. And then there's what you might call like super mundane forms of transformation. Like there's people who are like, yeah, I'd like to be a little bit nicer to people or like, yes, I'd like to be a little bit less temperamental or reactive. And then there's people who are like, I want to feel one with all of creation. One of these is a slightly larger transformation than the others. Just a little bit. Um, so this is kind of what I find fascinating is like, again, like there's clearly like, I don't think that there's a question of quality anymore. Right. Um, because, you know, one of the things that I'm trying to do with the aspiration stuff is do a little bit of an update to the personal projects literature where, um, personal projects analysis, unfortunately, like treats projects like keep the grass mown and liberate my people from Pharaoh as like the same kind of thing. And I don't think that's quite right. I think some projects are qualitatively different than others. Um, I don't think like, yes, I would like to be wiser or kinder or more virtuous is as qualitatively different from I want to feel one with all of creation as it is from I need to keep my lawn mown. Um, so I think it's that one's more of a question of scale. But there's still the interesting open question of why, like what leads somebody to like have that scale of a desire for transformation versus somebody who's just like, yeah, I'd like to be a little bit less angry some of the time. So I think as the aspirations get grander in scale, the practices that you need to engage in in order to achieve those, um, those aspirations and those transformations get correspondingly more complex. So that's why the interest in magic and mysticism, because it's kind of like, okay, do you want to change a little or do you want to change a lot? Do you want to change like a one small thing or do you want to change everything? And um, so, and so for the people that wants that have that drive of the big transformation, uh, but you say that you're not, uh, you seem that, you know, playing with magic is not the, the smartest idea for most people. What do you envision that to look like in a secularized modern society? I don't think most people need as big of a change as they think they do. Right. Um, you know, it's like most people do not need to go after like the fly buzzing around their living room with like an AK 47, a fly swatter will do. Um, I don't know. It's, I, this is, I think, where Dan and I differ a little bit. I do not think most people need magic. Um, I think most people can live very happy lives without magic. Um, <clears throat> but my interest has always kind of been with those few people who are interested in going a little bit further. Um, so, because one of the problems that I think we have with our society is like, there's just no map. Right. Like there's no outside of like the mindless acquisition of material wealth. There's no map to self-improvement. 
Um, there's no like, here's our highest ideal of what a human should be. And everybody can point to that human and go, yes, this is the ideal. Um, because, you know, for a long time, that was somebody who was very rich. And then we got a bunch of people who were very rich. And then we realized that those people are probably monsters. Um, well, that's that's kind of what religion has tried to try to fix. It's like there, there's this ideal that one should strive for. And right. that rules above right. everything else. But people... People, even if they believe, they tend not to, not to follow right. that anyway somehow. But much like every system of thought, I think religion has a life cycle, right? Um, the I think the question of who should we be and how should we live is what keeps religion as a category open. Um, but the specific image that fills that in needs to change from generation to generation. Um, the ideal of the modern world cannot be the same as the ideal of the 1500s, no matter how much I'd like them to be the same thing. Um, so I am interested in kind of charting the processes of self-transformation so that I can have a map that is not necessarily tied to a particular image. Um, it'd be nice if people can say, oh, I'd like to be like this sort of person. Cool. Here is the sequence of transformations by which you arrive at like this sort of thing. Um, you don't have to go there if you don't want to. That's fine. Nobody's telling you that that's, that's a thing you need to do. But if you want to do it, there you go. It's like most people also don't need to climb mountains. <laughs> Yet people do. And there they are. And some people would be very upset if mountain climbing was not an option. That, that's a really good place to start, and, and I really, uh, I, th I think you really encapsulated uh, well. Uh, I think your your drive uh, and your interest in this, and, th and that I also share. Like um, th anything that relates to wisdom, like the work of uh, Vareki has been very uh, inspirational to me. And for some reason, people that he hangs out with also seem to be also <laughs> really damn smart and really damn insightful. Um, and I, I think you nailed it in, in, in your last response and I, I share the same sentiment. And I hope that your work kind of progresses on that, that shines light on that and that can make, can make our, our map better because I think it's a, it's a map that we should follow even though we don't have it. <laughs> that's, that's I appreciate that. I think it's going to be an interesting couple of months. <laughs> awesome. I'll look forward to it. So I don't want to steal uh, much more of your time, even though I can talk for a long time with you. But this has been awesome. And I, I really appreciate uh, you coming here. And I, I really liked it. And your work is fascinating. And basically, every time you talk, <laughs> it's amazing. Like like I, I said this about your papers, but I'll also say it as your presence online. Like I, 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 I get that you're a bit introverted and whatnot. But I think it's a shame that you don't have more podcasts available, for example. And... You know, maybe it's something to consider because I think, you know, it's valuable. I think people, not only is it valuable because I think it gives value to people in the content uh, that, that you're giving out, but I think also from an inspiration standpoint, because I mean, I, I don't know if I'm going to go into research or not, but I might. And if, I'm, if I don't, then someone else might do it because they saw this podcast or they saw Reiki's conversation with you, for example. So I think it's also a way to 
put this type of work out there. And some people are going to look at it and say, hmm, this is really cool. I should, I should look into this. And maybe a small percentage of them will even contribute towards it. Oh, maybe I'll talk myself into it one of these days. <laughs> I hope so. Okay, so thank you so much. This has been amazing. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no problem. You're welcome. Awesome. Okay, so have a good day. You too.